Welcome this morning. We're continuing in our series on the parables, and today we'll talk about the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. So our reading today is from God's Word, Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. You may follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth to speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundations of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, you are the maker of heaven and earth the creator of all mankind, and the parent we so long to know and serve. Forgive us when we cannot see past our own wants and needs, our own griefs and sorrows, to the beauty and love of the kingdom of heaven that surrounds us. Inspire us to be like the planter of the mustard seed and the kneader of the dough in our parables today, to be workers for your kingdom of heaven here on earth. May we be your instruments of justice, peace, love, and forgiveness in a world torn by violence and hate. Let these words of scripture and of this meditation find fertile ground in the hearts of your servants this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever noticed that people are fascinated by the subject of heaven? If you go to amazon.com, and you will see dozens and dozens of book titles about heaven, such as Proof of Heaven, 90 Minutes in Heaven, My Journey to Heaven, and Heaven, 33 Stories from a Real Place. And that's just a sampling. Apparently, people in Jesus' time were also fascinated by heaven, because in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is mentioned 31 times. That's a lot. Last week, Jerry reminded us about the unique nature of parables, that we can miss Jesus' meaning on the first pass if we don't do a little digging. A parable is a lot more like a riddle, really, than a story. The characters and the circumstances are drawn from everyday life, but there's always something surprising, a twist, something unexpected that would have caused Jesus' listeners to stop, think, and question. Last week, we saw a farmer who did something that seemed very reckless in the parable of the sower. He cast his seed everywhere instead of carefully planting it in a garden or a field. Listeners might have thought him wasteful, throwing seed where it surely wouldn't grow. But that is indeed the image that Jesus wanted them to consider. Why would the sower do such a crazy thing? This week's parable also has some surprising elements. 
I think Jesus' listeners may have expected a different description of heaven than the one he gave them. What about pearly gates and streets paved with gold, angels floating in the clouds, and of course the heavenly banquet? Heaven is like a mustard seed and yeast? What? (laughs) Jesus has a habit of defying expectations in the gospel. Last week, he wanted his listeners to see God as the extravagant sower, the one who cast the seed across all the land to all God's people. Seed will land on the cement sidewalk, the asphalt road, amidst the weeds, as well as on fertile Indiana farm ground. The kingdom of heaven is for all, for all with ears to hear, and only God knows where it will take root. You only have to consider that wacky tree that grows out of the county courthouse in Greenfield, Indiana, to know that some seeds have a way of finding a place to grow. Jesus was unique among rabbis of his time when he taught in parables, but I think he did that because he knew that people love stories, and they were memorable, something they could take home and think about. The kingdom of heaven has come near, says Jesus over and over again in Matthew chapters 3, 4, and 10. In this parable, heaven is mysteriously on two planes, the one that is already and the one that is coming here on earth. Both heavens are supposed to mirror each other if the world were behaving as God had planned. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we say. Scholars call this idea realized eschatology, which is a fancy way of saying that the kingdom of heaven is already here. It arrived in Jesus' ministry, but it's hidden in our midst. But it is also in the process of arriving. Jesus is the one who got the kingdom of heaven ball rolling. Every once in a while, I think we get little peaks of it, assuring us that it's in process. It's kind of like when you see the writing on the box through the tissue paper at Christmas time, you know what it is. It's a Red Rider BB gun. And of note in those parables, Jesus uses ordinary, regular, and even nameless people to describe the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean for us? In 1581 in France, if you were a Christian, you were Catholic. And if you were not rich, you were poor. There was nothing in between. That was the year that in a small village, a boy named Vincent was born. His hardworking, industrious family recognized early on that he was unusually bright and sensitive, and they encouraged him to the priesthood, not only an honor for the family, but a chance to be educated and advance his station in life. After studying with local priests, their observations about Vincent's talents and intelligence were confirmed. His father sold a pair of oxen, a large sacrifice for the poor family, so that Vincent could attend the university. Vincent eventually was rewarded with a plum assignment. He was sent by the church to be the personal priest of the landed and wealthy Gandhi family, overseeing the churches and religious education of the villages they owned as well as personally instructing the Gandhi children. In this capacity, he came to know leading Catholic figures, royalty, and members of prominent French families. 
he admitted later that he thought then that he had reached his personal goals in life. He was literally living in the lap of luxury, secure, admired, and honored. He might have continued in this comfortable fashion if not for one particular day. While he was accompanying Lady Gandhi on her carriage rounds over the estates, they encountered a very poor family in desperate straits. This family was helpless, devastated by illness and poverty. Their situation was so extreme that Lady Gandhi was overcome with pity and compassion and inquired earnestly of Vincent, her priest, what must be done? That question, what must be done? And experiencing the extreme poverty of the family was a defining moment for Vincent. His heart was open to see his life and mission in a new light. Well past the age of 40, he, a priest, saw that his purpose was not to escape his poverty, but that God was calling him to serve those who were poor. Leaving the Gandhi family, he enlisted the aid of the noble women he'd met in Paris and helped form the Ladies of Charity to assist the sick in the local hospital. When the work became too much for those refined women, he organized and trained women from the farms as the Daughters of Charity to devote their lives to caring for the ill and for thousands of abandoned infants and children in France. A friend of both kings and of peasants, Vincent de Paul's ability to hear God's voice and to do a complete turnaround in his faith, devoting his position, his organizational skills, his connections, and his passion to caring for the sick and needy have inspired hospitals, orphanages, schools, and services to the poor around the world for hundreds of years, helping to usher in the kingdom of God. On a trip to France this summer, I couldn't help but be impressed by Vincent's accomplishments. What really hit me was his ordinariness, his humanity. Here was a guy who was looking out for himself. He grabbed the brass ring, the only one that was available to him, to lift himself up out of a hopeless future. But in the process, he forgot about God, the one who had given him his skills and talents. He was just a guy like some of us are or were, someone who had God in his head, but not in his heart. He may be a venerated saint now, but in his life he was a human being just like us, with ambitions, hopes, weaknesses, and temptations. But that question, what must be done, moved him to plant a seed in the ground that grew to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. The parables of the mustard seed and the yeast are related in several ways to the story of Vincent. In all three, the actions of one person have surprising results. In Matthew, these two parables were paired together for a purpose. Although we may not think that mustard seeds and yeast have much in common, apparently Matthew did, the parables do indeed have similarities. Both describe the kingdom of heaven, both are short, both involve food, both, of the, in, both the characters are nameless, and they have a theme of spectacular growth. And both have extravagant and extraordinary elements, something they also share with last week's parable of the sower. The first time I saw a mustard seed, I think I was about 12 years old, and it was encased in a glass ball on a gold chain. <laughs> it was given to me by my great aunt and uncle. 
Aside from that, I know very little about mustard seeds other than there's a jar of them in my cupboard. You may have seen them hanging around in a jar of stone ground mustard in your refrigerator. According to a little research, though, mustard seeds are used for medicines, were used for medicines in Jesus' time, and were also used to flavor food, then as now, because of their strong, pungent taste. But even if we've never seen an actual mustard seed, in this passage we learn that a mustard seed is very small. I think we have a picture of one. The parable says that the little mustard seed grows into a tree large enough for birds to nest in. And this is where the extraordinary part comes in, because mustard seeds normally don't grow into a tree. They grow into a bush, a tall bush at best. Mustard seeds just don't become trees, at least not normal mustard seeds. And so the growth of a mustard seed into a large tree, large enough for roosting birds, is really highly unusual. The mustard tree recalls the prophet Ezekiel's apocalyptic vision, where Israel is pictured as a tall tree, exalted at last, with birds nesting in her branches, symbolizing the future time when all nations will come under God's providence and care. So the tree is meaningful. And then we have the parable of the yeast, which is more accurately understood, really, as the parable of the leaven. Women in Jesus' time use leaven, or bread starter, to make their daily bread. We use leaven today as well for some breads, like sourdough. And we have a picture of some leaven here. Ooh, yeah. For those of you, if you're like me, who are not scientists, uh, leaven happens when yeast enzymes break down the starch in the flour and convert it to glucose. So it's fermentation, and it literally grows. And yes... It's kind of yucky. (laughs) You know it's ready when it has a pleasant, sour smell, and it bubbles. Looks like that one's ready. In the U.S. today, bread is a $42 billion industry. Even with all our carb watching, that hasn't hurt bread sales that much. Bread continues as a food staple the world over. Leaven was important for bread making and was a symbol for bread in Jesus' time understood as food in its most complete and perfect form. Bread has symbolism and meaning in the Bible. God provided manna for the Israelites in the desert. Jesus fed 5,000 people bread. Jesus is the bread of life. And he taught us to thank God for our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. Bread is what people need to survive both physically and spiritually in Scripture. The extravagance in the parable of the leaven lies in the quantity of flour. In Hebrew, a measure of flour is called a seah, so we're three measures of flour. We're reminded in the parable of the Genesis 18 when Sarah and Abraham entertained three heavenly guests. Abraham runs to Sarah and says for her to make ready three measures of flour to knead it and make cakes. Well, as we'll see, that was easy for Abraham to say. (laughs) Today, we have no idea without a little research that three measures of flour is equivalent to 50 to 60 pounds of flour, an extravagant amount. We buy flour in five-pound quantities in the grocery store, so that would be 10 to 12 bags of flour. It's an extraordinary amount of flour that would make a fantastic amount of bread. Even if one woman could possibly knead all of that together, it would be an enormous quantity. 
I have a vision of I love, an I Love Lucy episode with Lucy's baking and there's flour everywhere. That would make about 100 and 150 loaves of bread. And the woman in our parable, though oddly, she doesn't knead the leaven into the flour. The Greek word translated is hide. She hides the leaven in the flour. With that much flour, maybe that's all that she could do. In the 1980s, it was popular to make something called friendship bread. You got a sourdough starter or leaven. You kneaded it with flour and let it rise, and then you baked bread. Every 10 days, you bake two to four loaves of sourdough bread, always keeping back a little leaven for your next batch. My mother got me started with a taste of the bread, and she then sent me home with that and a starter. Like her decoupage and her macrame phases, she was totally into the friendship bread. And it really was delicious, but I must admit that the novelty soon began to wear off. After all, even the Israelites got tired of manna after a while. After weeks and weeks of eating sourdough bread, even my husband Charlie, who has never met a loaf of bread that he didn't like, began to complain. (laughs) And he has such a unique way of complaining. Rather than criticize my cooking, he had this tagline. He would say, honey, for future reference, so here it came. For future reference, do you think you could make that bread a little less often? Well, I wanted to scream, no! (laughs) The leaven was controlling my life and my menus. So I started freezing it. I put it in the freezer until the door wouldn't close. It seemed like we had enough bread to last a lifetime. There was just something so alive about that leaven. I really felt guilty throwing it away. Last summer, Friendship Bread became more clear to me when I read a book called Friendship Bread by Darian Gee about a small town in Illinois. An anonymous gift of Friendship Bread left on a doorstep begins to change the lives of three women, each suffering from a situation that the others don't know about, each one needing support. The gift of bread brought them together and was transformed into a gift of creating a community of friendship, love, and hope. And that community began to spread throughout the whole town as well. The purpose of friendship bread is to give it to friends or people you'd like to become your friends. Apparently, I had missed that point when I was making friendship bread. In Guy's story, friendship bread performs like the leaven and the seed in the parables. It helps to grow the kingdom because it is an expression of love and care. Between both the parables of the mustard seed and leaven runs a theme of hiddenness, the leaven hidden in the flower, and the mustard seed planted out of sight in the earth. The work of both is initially secret or not seen like Jesus' ministry was to those without eyes to hear and understand. But there is also a theme of something that grows and is too big to contain, a wonderful, life-giving energy. The seed planted in the ground and the leaven hidden in the flower will grow beyond our expectations into a huge amount of bread and a tree, large enough for birds of the nations to rest in. They cannot help it. The kingdom of God has a life of its own, and it is too wonderful to be contained. And Jesus tells us here that that is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. It is growing right now, even though it often may seem hidden, even today. But look around. 
It's here, as Jesus says. Jesus was relaying the good news that the kingdom had arrived in his ministry, and yet it is also mysteriously in the process of arriving via the works of ordinary people. A man planted a seed. A woman hides leaven in the bread. Vincent is stopped in his tracks by a question. A loaf of bread is left at a neighbor's door. The kingdom of heaven's arrival is at the hands of ordinary people, like you and me, who find ourselves gathered up into a force of love and goodness greater than ourselves. What must be done? When we follow Jesus' teachings to love God and to love our neighbors, the kingdom grows. Our actions of love are what makes a difference. Both our small and our extravagant actions of generosity and compassion contribute to the arrival of God's kingdom where there is peace, sharing, where no one goes hungry or dies of disease, where everyone has a family, where we love and care for our brothers and sisters in the human race. These acts of love add to the energy and growth of the kingdom of heaven on earth, a kingdom that is nurtured and tended by God himself. Christian music artist Matthew West asks in his song, Do Something, God, why don't you do something? God replies, I did. I created you. My friend Emily returned this summer from a family reunion. She has a large family traced back to her great-grandparents and her grandmother and her grandmother's three sisters. It wasn't in the news, and it wasn't even noteworthy to most, but when her great-grandmother died, it was said of her, no one loved her Savior more. Within this family, seeds took root, and the leaven grew as the children's children and the children's children children through the generations, learn to love God even more through actions than words, says Emily. They grew to be selfless, to serve others, to pray, to lean on God in good times and bad. They learned to love each other and their neighbors as God loved them and to respond generously to the needs of the world. Emily sees her extended family every two years at a family gathering. It is a blessing and inspiration a joy-filled experience for her to witness how the seeds of faith have grown like mustard tree into the generations, expanding God's kingdom on earth. may not be a surprise to learn that Emily grew up to become a physician who has a special heart and call to minister to hospice patients. We can learn from these two parables, the story of St. Vincent and Emily's family, that someone, anyone, a man, woman, or child can help bring about the kingdom of heaven. Someone needs to place the leaven in the dough. Someone needs to plant the seed so they'll grow. Small acts, even those that are hidden, quiet, humble, small, but done with love, have the potential to produce great things for God. What must be done? I was looking on the internet for a story of a woman I read about a few years ago. She had started a ministry making dresses out of pillowcases for little girls in Africa, little girls who had no dresses. I thought that would be a wonderful example of contributing to God's kingdom, but I couldn't find that story. Instead, I was amazed because I found dozens of stories about other women who had followed her lead 
and started their own ministries making those dresses. A simple pattern, a simple idea from a now unnamed woman, leaven of hope. The seed of her actions to help little girls feel good about themselves and know that God loves them had grown and grown into a mustard tree of extravagance and goodness. I read about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dresses shipped to Africa each year and saw the faces of little girls standing in their dresses, beaming with happiness. Jesus is saying that we all have an opportunity to play a role in the kingdom. The kingdom has arrived and is in our own backyards. It will arrive in its fullness and is indeed already present, where kindness and generosity are extended, where everyone has bread to eat, where children are clothed and have a chance to learn, when a hug is given to a grieving friend, when you allow your life to be changed when God speaks to you, when you entertain three strangers in your home. Your actions can be as small as a mustard seed, as hidden as leaven, but you are participating in the divine greatness of God. What must be done? The question of when the kingdom of heaven will arrive is related to the question posed to St. Vincent de Paul 400 years ago. Jesus gives us a hint about its arrival in these parables that it will be in its own good time. It's when the mustard tree reaches its full growth, when the bread is ready to be removed from the oven, when there is peace and plenty, when we have done what God put us here on earth to do, to love God and to love one another, when there is no longer a need to ask the question, what must be done? Amen. Amen.